The ETF Edge podcast is sponsored by Invesco QQQ, supporting the innovators changing the world. Invesco Distributors, Inc. And welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange-traded funds, you're in the right place. Every week, we're bringing you interviews, market analysis, and breaking down what it all means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Pisani. Markets are still suffering in the wake of Silicon Valley Bank's big blow-up. Today on the show, we're drilling down into the impact the collapse is having on the broader banking business and regional bank ETFs, as well as what it could mean for the future of Fed rate hikes. Plus, we'll break down the results of the latest SPIVA survey and talk about active versus passive management with the man in charge of S&P Dow Jones Indices. Here's my conversation with Dan Draper. He's the CEO of S&P Dow Jones Indices, along with John Dobby. He's the founder and CEO of Astoria Portfolio Advisors. Dan, um, talk to me about a little bit about the ripple effects of the Silicon Valley bank collapse uh, on the index business and on ETF markets. Well, you watch this every day. What, what infi- impact is this having? Yeah, I mean, uh, great to be here. Thank you very much. Look, in, in terms of the good news is markets are working. We're seeing price discovery. We're seeing, even though it is higher volatility, we're seeing risk uh, again, being priced efficiently, so going through the markets. So the indices are, you know, are working well, particularly in equities, uh, but we are having some impact. Um, you're seeing Silicon uh, Valley Bank, we announced, uh, has left uh, or will be leaving on uh, the open on Wednesday of the S&P 500 index. Also announced this morning, Signature Bank uh, will also, uh, pending a time after the close, will be leaving the index as well. Yeah. And, uh, John, it, it, what I saw last week was really remarkable, um, the moves in the ETFs. Uh, the Spider Bank ETF, the KBE, was it's down 25 percent in the last three days. I mean, these are big banks. That's yep. rather stunning. Uh, and this is an equal weighted index. It's, it's t- targeted to the S&P uh, Bank Index, right? Uh, I saw volumes on Friday. I, I don't think it was an all-time record. This has been around about 18 years, but it was close to an historic record. Uh, maybe some stuff in 2008, 2009. Um, what if any... Uh, Trading stresses emerged from these uh, this 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 wild week. What what I saw was a lot of price drops, but the plumbing intact. I don't, but what's your point of view? Yeah, I, I think the, what's important is that you know, despite all the volatility, stocks get hold to the ETF continues to trade, volumes go up. People look at the ETF as a price discovery tool, so they're not sure where like the next regional bank stock that's halted is going to open. But people look to the ETF market to say, okay, what does the market expect the sector to to do and you know, I think the plumbing actually, time and time again, always you know, prevails. And we find out the ETF is the go-to place to get liquidity and to see what the, the market expects. And the, the, the important thing we have to keep, and this is an educational moment about the ETF business, a lot of the underlying stock never trades when you're trading, uh, for example, the KBE. You simply trade the stock itself. And while you might have the underlying trade if you're having redemptions and creations, for the most part, that's an enormous amount of liquidity that happens trading banks, the KBE, without actually trading the underlying stocks. And that, is, that provides some kind of relief to the overall market worried about trading Absolutely. those individual stocks. Absolutely. Yeah, so the, the ETF is a go-to vehicle. There's so much liquidity in the secondary market that there's not even a need to kind of do a creation redemption. So yeah. that's a good thing about we ETFs. We also had huge inflows into sort of short-term cash instruments. Like I've been putting up the iShares short treasury bond ETF, the SHV that's out there, um, Spider one to three month T-bill. Um, very attractive for investors who are uh, worried about everything from rising interest rates to you know, further market volatility. Uh, those are, uh, yields on those are reversing a little bit in the last few days. But the, again, volume is titanic. And for everyone who says, oh, you're never going to be able to price 
these um, moments of volatility because the underlying uh, bonds will freeze up. Well, it just it hasn't happened yet. It's not nobody's trying to say it's not been a mess, but the plumbing works. Yeah. Yeah. I think the naysayers need to pick a different topic because we've seen time and time again, fixing the ETFs liquidity goes up, even though there is underlying volatility in the in the in the bond market. So, yeah. OK, maybe to just pivot back, the larger liquidity story, I think, is really strong. ETFs are part of and a big driver, but a bigger liquidity story. Think about exchange traded derivatives futures, you know, uh, options. The SPX options had a record trading day on Friday. People are trying to, you know, price risk. They're trying to find portfolio insurance in many ways. Yeah. I, I want to move on to another topic. I've got a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, we don't get Dan here that often. He's the indexing master. Uh, S&P released its annual Spivert report last week. Um, this looks at the performance, those of you who don't know, of active managers against passive benchmarks. It's sort of the gold standard on how that uh, debate goes. Uh, on the surface, uh, this looked like very good news for active managers. 49% of large cap managers beat the benchmark, 51% underperformed. That sounds terrible, but actually, this was the best performance since 2009 uh, for active management uh, overall. And yet, uh, underneath uh, that, 2022 had some very unusual tailwinds that might not be repeated, uh, Dan. Uh, tell us a little bit about those, those tailwinds. The average stock... Outperformed the S&P, but t big cap tech underperformed. That was a big factor. It was. So if you think back, 2021, going into last year, 85% of big cap active managers underperformed the S&P 500. Conditions changed a lot last year that we know. S&P 500 total return, as well as even investment grade fixed income, were both down 18% you know, total return last year. So conditions meant uh, correlations were high, but importantly, dispersion was high. Those are two critical variables for active managers to outperform, to take more concentrated risk in their portfolios. And you saw some of the results. So the question is, they still 51% underperformed. The question is, can they sustain it? Generally, active management tends to be a zero-sum game. They need the really poor active managers to be even poorer to get that alpha. Yeah, it, this is a statistical point that's very important for people to understand. The average stock outperformed the S&P 500. Big tech underperformed. In years before, big tech has been so big and powerful that when it outperforms, the rest of the market often will underperform. So you could have 100 stocks in the S&P up uh, in a year and 400 down, and the S&P will be up because the big cap tech stocks move. That didn't happen last year. And so statistically, it's very important at what your authors pointed out was it's not quite a dartboard effect, but your chances of outperforming are very high when the average stock outperforms the S&P 500. It's not quite throwing darts at a board, but statistically, you know, they can demonstrate that your chances of outperforming are better. That's right. You know, you use the word dispersion. I yeah. have to define that when people, when <laughs> smart guys like you say that. I have to define what you're, you're talking about. You know, I, I think in theory, though, dispersion, you know, should have been higher last year. So people's view on what a stock is worth versus the spot price, you know, should have been a lot wider. And it should, you should have had more opportunity to have perform. But I think, you know, what we find is that there's this massive, you know, influx into ETFs. You know, U.S. large cap index is very difficult to have perform. So you're kind of better off being in, in active managers in like small caps, mid caps, international bonds. I think U.S. large cap is just very, very difficult to outperform, and it, you know, and the Spiever report shows it. So the takeaway, and I, this is very important about long term, what's really going on here. And I use the same line for years. Ninety-one percent of large cap managers underperform after ten years. Now you have many different variables, but for large cap, after ten years, ninety-one percent 
uh, underperformed. That's a, a pretty dismal fact. And here, the other important point that you bring out that I think is really one of the reasons your report is sort of the gold standard is the survivorship bias. Mm. Hedge funds like to point out, oh, I outperform 90% of all hedge funds, but they only take hedge funds that have been surviving 10 years. And as it turns out, a vast numbers of uh, funds, mutual funds, uh, close because they're terrible, because they underperform. And it's, the number is something like 30% over a 10-year period don't survive exactly. 10, 10 years. So you account for that survivorship bias because if I'm trapped in that stock and it closes after 60, I still lost money even if it doesn't show up in some you know, hedge fund index somewhere. That's exactly right. So you're getting the, the true apples to apples comparison through the survivorship, also making sure that, you know, things like the largest share classes and we're not double counting on share classes. So and, and in addition to the relative you know, performance of passive versus active and that outperformance, if you will, for passive, um, we've saved investors over four hundred billion dollars in fees over the past 26 years across the 500, 400, 600 indice, you know, product-related indices. Why don't active managers out, out, ever outperform? What, what, what's the, the problem? Can you summarize it? I think they charge too much. So the more fees you pay, you know, then that detracts your return. There's not enough dispersion in, like, let's say, U.S. large cap. They don't take as much active bets, right? Like, when you read sometimes what a portfolio manager owns in their large cap, you know, active mutual funds, you know, it's like basically the same stocks as the S&P. So you have to do something different than the S&P if you want to outperform. Sounds trivial, but you know, that's just something that they don't do. So. This is why Kathy Wood's so famous. I mean, she, she's sort of the anti-S&P. She's a fund manager that took bets outside the norm. She became famous. She briefly was enormous performance and struggled. I mean, look, you have some incredibly smart, talented people competing with each other, you know, cats and dogs every day. Yeah, well, that's the key point. There's no competitive advantage. I mean, 50 years ago, you, you had um, less information dispersion. You, you, a few people might have been able to outperform and do a little bit better than the rest of the crowd. But, it's, you know, people ask me, why are the fund managers so stupid? It's, they're not stupid. Actually, it's the opposite problem. Right. They're really smart. They're all really smart. And when you have a room full of 99% geniuses, it's going to be hard to outperform on that, on that test. Uh, and that's why they keep referring to, uh, I find it uh, annoying, but retail is dumb money because they're often not as well informed as the professional investor. Right. Um, and there's few of that around, few retail uh, traders that are actually around these days. Um, on Friday, Dan, um, I want to go back to indexing. The S&P is going to see a rebalance in its sectors. Uh, and I'll make this simple. There's two major ones. There's a number of things that are happening here. Uh, but uh, Target, Dollar General, and Dollar Tree are going to go move from consumer discretionary to consumer staples. Uh, so we're going to see uh, consumer staples get bigger and discretionary get a little smaller. Uh, and then Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, and a few others are going to move from technology to financials. So technology is going to get a little smaller and financials are going to get uh, a, little, a little bigger. Uh, you know, uh, th this is the uh, annual change, what we call the GICS classification system. I love saying GICS. Uh, Explain it. General Index Classification System. You're right. So this was something that uh, S&P Dow Jones Indices, in partnership with MSCI, uh, really started in 1999. And it had, I think, a, a big impact on helping standardize and the growth of passive investing. And really, especially in, in global equities, 
giving them this classification system. So uh, this is a formal process. Uh, we go through uh, open public consultations to get feedback from all market participants. But the key is making sure these indices are relevant. Yeah. Are they reflecting changes in consumer demand or are they changes in the marketplace structure and getting uh, you know, open uh, consultations to make sure this system remains relevant? Well, I like to say these reflect common sense changes. For example, I, I got asked for years, why is Walmart a consumer staples and Target is a consumer discretionary? And I'd say, I don't know. Ask, ask S&P and MSCI. It, they are, it seems to me. And now they're, they're sort of recognizing that. I don't think... Visa is a technology stock. I think Visa is a financial stock. I mean, common sense would say yes, but, you know, they're finally recognizing that. Well, if you think over time, See, sorry to interrupt, I, say, I think the retail is a great example that, you know, previously before Internet shopping, in many ways, you thought about how uh, retailers distribute. And maybe that is a criteria. Today's world, the distribution matters less. What do they sell? What are the products? And I think taking that type of input to ensure uh, that an industry group uh, is, is defined the right way is important. Yeah. And you've made other big changes. We, I mean, when you took REITs out and created a whole 11th mm. sector there, that was a common sense thing. REITs are, you know, real estate's a separate category to me uh, from, from financials. Um, you know, John, when we used to do this 30 years ago, this was sort of a nice academic discussion. But now there's a lot of money. Yeah. And th this is why I keep bringing this up. I always like to say, you know, you, you, you supervise the biggest, you know, fund management company in the world, essentially, because so much is indexed. So much money is indexed. Let me, we're not. This. We're not a fiduciary. That's why it's I understand John that. next to me. I understand he that. Is, but you're, you're, but we what, are what you guys determine in the S&P and in the Dow Jones Industrial Average, there's real money to it now. 30 years ago, we were a bunch of academics talking about it. But I think this. the crucial thing is it's, you break a good point because the independence of what we do to have standards, to have benchmarks and, and these indices, not only for passive, but for active, to do performance attribution, risk attribution. That's why to have this separation with a fiduciary like John, that is crucial because trust is what builds the markets. And having independent benchmarks, transparent benchmarks is crucial. Seven trillion indexed to the S&P 500. And that's only the guys who pay you. We don't even know, I haven't seen a number of how many, you know, I call them closet indexers, guys who, you know, benchmark to the S&P 500 but won't pay you mm. for a licensing fee. I don't even know how big that is, but it's probably as big as the seven trillion. Seven trillion dollars is what, 18, 19, 20 percent of the S&P's value. And right that's now. why it's that's hard a, to beat the S&P. Well, there's there you so go. So much money tracking it and you don't have it. So, so what's the implication for investors? I, I often say index providers are the biggest fund managers in the world. I know you get antsy about that, but you <laughs> no, understand my, yeah. my point. Um, what, what's the implication? I think if you're trading like XLP, XLY, you know, XLK, XLF, you have to understand now that there's different stocks that are going to be put into these ETFs. So you need to be mindful of your risk. So again, you always use a portfolio construction tool, look under the hood, see what the aggregated risk is before and after. Um, so these are good changes, you know, and your firm consults, you know, a lot of independent people. We've been asked to participate. So, you know, they make a lot of sense to me. But unless you're trading like sector products, I think, you know, for the most part, if you're just buying VTI, VOO, IVV, you know, generally speaking, you're not going to have uh, much to worry about. Yeah, those are S&P 500 uh, indexes that are out there. I get this asked every time uh, from every time there's a change in the S&P 500. Somebody, a half a dozen people will index me and say, how does this committee work that the S&P 500 has? Now, you are the, 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 the CEO of indexing. That's right. So you are not on the committees to I'm make not. these determinations. There's an S&P 500 committee determine what goes in and out. They meet. You're not on the committee. No. There's a Dow Jones Industrial Committee. Mm -hmm. They meet. You're not on that committee. Correct. 
Okay, you all know that. He's not on the committee. With all of that said, yeah. explain how, for example, the S&P 500, how often does it work? How many people are in it? And what, what? Well, again, I think this is the crucial thing. Is if you think of what we're trying to accomplish is to create, again, these independent, transparent benchmarks, not managing money. That's crucial because for those who do and their fund boards and other you know, fiduciaries dependent on them, they need some level of true independence to prove their performance and, and risk attribution. But for us, we keep an independent process. Um, we, again, have public consultations from all market participants that will go into that committee. All the methodologies are published online. Yeah. You can go right now in terms of online. Once uh, public information becomes available, it'll come to me the same time it does to you or anyone else in the marketplace. Now, do changes. you, first off, how, how often does the, the, the S&P 500 committee, I know there's dozens of these committees, how, many, how often does that mean? Well, it depends. Like something like Friday, uh, they had to make a decision. They will meet ad hoc and there are formal meetings as well, but as appropriate for them to make decisions. And, and how many people index. are on the committee? Is it a dozen or 15? We don't really disclose that type of And you don't disclose who's on it we, we, as we well, right? The methodologies, the changes, all of that is public information. And some of it can be market sensitive. So that's where the independence and the separation of our analytical and commercial uh, activities are very well documented in making sure that we keep market uh, trust and respect. But the, the, the size of the committee and the people who are on the committee is not publicly. No, we don't make that. It's broader employee information we don't disclose as a company. Yeah, and uh, so you, the committee will meet. They'll come out and make a decision, let's just say, about a new st stock going in the S&P 500. They, they report to you, right? I'm the CEO responsible for the business, right, right. but in terms of their mandate, again, which is uh, defined, publicly disclosed on their methodologies, um, what have you on the website, they will uh, be able to act, and then they have a responsibility to publicly disclose any potential changes on that through our process. And, and is there any public input? I mean, do they go around, is, is there any way for the public to say, Absolutely. you know, let's, uh, I think XYZ shocks should be in the S&P 500. I mean, people think, and it's convenient to say, the S&P is the 500 largest companies in the United States, and it usually is, but there, there were instances, um, Tesla, for example, where it wasn't yet in there, and it was one of the biggest ones. So it's a, well, I think we it's, talked about you know, earlier, like I said, the, uh, the, the gig changes. This was all the result of public consultation. So for us, monitoring, going to the public, getting John's feedback, as well as uh, anyone in the marketplace to provide. So are there within, it, within the methodology? Do you publicly guidelines. say we'd like input, or how is that? Absolutely, there will be a request, a public press release, asking for uh, consultations. A date and time will be um, presented for that kind yeah. of discussion. Okay. Yeah. John, you like this process? Is it, 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 this seems to be the process that works the most. The world has gone to indexing, and it's gone to indexing because exactly what we just talked about, the inability of active management to outperform and the high cost uh, of that. This is a logical response, but it, 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 they now have become very powerful. It, yeah, I mean, I think Tesla was the, the kind of behemoth, right, because it wasn't added. I mean, you have to have four quarters of net positive earnings in order to be included to, into any S&P index, and I think that was a, you know, something that hung up on Tesla a lot. But the more quantitative and systematic the index is, I think the better for everyone so that there's no surprises. Okay. So. Yeah, I think look emphasizing any marketplace, whether it's a equity or financial, depends on trust. Buyers and sellers feel that and that's where having these standards is independent away from being a fiduciary, not biased by managing money or having that fiduciary responsibility. It's crucial having independent data, benchmarks, and ultimately indices. That's what gives people kind of the independent trust to be able to transact effectively. Yeah. 
Now it's time to round out the conversation with some analysis and perspective to help you better understand ETFs. This is the Markets 102 portion of the podcast. We'll be continuing the conversation with Dan Draper from S&P Dow Jones Indices. Dan, thanks for staying by with us. You know, one thing that always amazes me is the astonishing growth of indexing and ETFs in general. I've said several times, $7 trillion indexed to the S&P 500 directly. Mm. That's 18% of the S&P's value. It grows every year. ETFs, a $7 trillion business now, grows every year. It growed last year. Bonds down, stocks down, ETFs still Assets under management uh, uh, goes up. The index haters, uh, the ETF haters, uh, have now switched their arguments from saying, well, the ETF business won't work because if there's volatility, you won't be able to trade the underlying stocks or the underlying bonds. They don't make that argument so much anymore. Now they have a new argument. The new argument is passive investing, index investing, has gotten so big that it's going to make the market less liquid or in, in some way um, not as efficient. They use the word efficiency. Mm. Uh, is there any truth at all to that? Has S&P studied this? Is this a concern? We have looked at this, and I think maybe defining efficiency and what, what you look at. Today, in terms of assets under management, uh, passive investing is roughly somewhere between 25 and 30% of total. So it's still a minority. But importantly, when I think efficiency, a lot of ways you think about price discovery. What, what impact is it having on prices and the marketplace for people to transact? And if you actually look, uh, even with, say, you know, up to 30% of the assets under management, the actual daily trading volume related to passive strategies is still less than 10%. So if you really think about it, for active managers who are still making up over 90% of the trading and, if you will, active price discovery of individual stocks and bonds, um, really for passive to even approach 50% to be half of that impact, the AUM would have to grow over 80%. We estimated S&P about 83% at today's levels to really have that impact. So we are miles and miles away yeah. from having that impact on price discovery. So you're making a very important distinction between investing levels with about 30% to passive and the actual daily trading patterns exactly. where passive investors are still only, as you said, about 10%. Because if you think about active managers trying to outperform an index and, and, and on a relative basis outperform their peer group, um, they're having to take bigger, more concentrated, in many cases, higher risk bets. So that generally means there's higher turnover, more trading of individual yeah. securities, which can then influence the price. Whereas passive, for the most part, is a price taker. We reflect the broader market uh, perspective. I want to ask you about market capitalization versus other ways of looking at indexing. I, I've grown up with market capitalization. Um, the S&P 500 is sort of the benchmark for everything. The Dow Jones is a price-weighted index, um, but uh, I've grown up with market capitalization, and most of the ETF business is indexed with market capitalization. And yet, in the last few years, I've become a little more cognizant of alternative ways to weight the market, yes. particularly equal-weight indexes. The S&P has an equal-weight index. Uh, and there are some compelling reasons, particularly last year, where we saw the average stock outperforming the S&P 500 because tech stocks, which have such a big weighting, underperformed. Has S&P studied any of this? Is there any recommendations you can make? We have. Well, it's interesting you mentioned, because if you actually look back, we're at the New York Stock Exchange now. The first attempted indices back in the 1970s were equal weighted. 
But the problem was back then you had dollar fixed dollar commissions, you had high trading costs. The, the, the costs of constructing and rebalancing these indices were ridiculous. So as we would say in the industry, the tracking error of actually uh, tracking that indice was so high, you had no alternative but to move to market capitalization weighted. What do we see decades later? There are no commissions, fractional shares. A lot of the market frictions have really left. So when you look at something you mentioned like the S&P 500, absolutely the original, if you will, market cap weighted uh, version still really dominates incredible price discovery, uh, the most liquid equity security in the world in terms of an, an ETF wrapper. But then you can also see that liquidity now to do equal weight. It's changed. You can actually do it very efficiently, the hedging for that within an S&P 500. So you can get those characteristics, maybe a bit more of the value, a bit more of the, the, the mid-cap, if you will, uh, characteristics. I shouldn't say mid-cap. It's still large cap, but the smaller capitalization weighting there. So it gives you a different risk return um, pr uh, profile. Um, you know, in terms of the index itself. So it's a very nice complement um, that we offer alongside the main S&P 500. Well, there's a good example of technological efficiency. It's just gotten better and easier to calculate these indexes. You know, I can't imagine, I, I know the origins of S&P go back to 1926, uh, when the combination of Standard and, and mm. Poor's was created. And the modern S&P goes back to 1957. I can't imagine prior to computers, in, when the, even in 1957, when the modern S&P came in, what it was like calculating the S&P on a daily basis. I, I mean, you'd have people with slide rules sitting there. Yes. I mean, literally, I actually have never read a historical account of and this. And I can't speak to 1926, but yes, you're right. A lot of manual processes. But that's really, I think, what our job is, you know, within the broader global capital markets is to bring this historical, uh, you know, data presence, but the independence. How can we provide the pricing, but also um, uh, the transparency through these long-term market cycles? How can we kind of bring to help investors globally, our clients who are the asset managers, yeah. the fiduciaries, uh, really you know, look, be able to look at markets and economies over long periods of time? So where do we go from here? You're in charge of indexes. You've got to be in charge of growing the business a little bit. What's, what's new and exciting in the index world? Where do you see it heading in the next few years? Yeah, what's happening now is, is many investors we have are now looking, and we can see in today's uh, volatile market, people need diversification. And diversification can take many forms, but one we're seeing is multi-asset. So now being able to look at equities, uh, fixed income, and even commodities. As you know, we have the GSCI index as well. So how can they build better portfolios for their clients and having all of those in an efficient way? And particularly certain client channels for us, like insurance. Insurance has been historically a very active area. They're increasingly moving passive, but they want to do it with these multiple asset classes. Dan Draper, thanks very much for joining us. Everybody, Dan Draper is the CEO of S&P Dow Jones Indices. He's the man that people report to for the S&P 500 committee and the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And no, he is not on those committees. Please stop writing to me. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for listening to the ETFX podcast. Invesco QQQ believes new innovations create new opportunities. Become an agent of innovation. Invesco QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.